I'm Matthew Woods, host of Leading Out of the Woods, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Dr. Quentin Shepard, also known as Q, who is the superintendent of Victoria Independent School District in Victoria, Texas. We are focused on his book written with Sarah Williamson called The Secret of Transformational Leadership. What a powerful book. What an incredible book that all leaders should read. You are going to just love this talk. Thanks for listening. And by the way, before you go, it'd be so cool if you went to my website, stephenmaletto.com slash reviews and uh, left a review. Could you do that for me? That'd be so cool. You are awesome. Enjoy the show. It's the education podcast, your favorite show, with lots of groovy guests and they share what they know. So crank it up to 10 and let your neighbors know that here's another show with Dr. Steve Maletto. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Teaching, learning, leading, K-12. Ah, ah, with Dr. Steve Maletto. Dr. Quentin Shepard, a true visionary for the future of education, and from here on out, we're going to call him Q, is a superintendent at Victoria Independent School District in Victoria, Texas. Sarah Williamson of SWPR Group works with leaders in education to create thoughtful public relations programs that promote growth, build momentum, and enhance learners' academic success and overall well-being. Today, we are focused on their book, The Secret to Transformational Leadership. Even with a deluge of leadership books on the market, a superintendent of a large school district and his colleague, the head of a prominent PR firm, they still struggled to find a book that spoke to them about what they needed to become really successful leaders, so they wrote one themselves. Dr. Quentin Shepard and co-writer Sarah Williamson used their combined decades of experience in the education and corporate spheres to create a unique model for leadership that is anchored by compassion and powerful new language. The Secret to Transformational Leadership presents the personal journeys of such professionals as a pediatric cancer specialist, a president of an innovative nonprofit, and a former investment banker who became an online operator entrepreneur. The authors use their experiences to illustrate how we are at a precipice for real change in the way we perceive and enact leadership. This book offers practical advice about how to make a transition into compassionate leadership through adopting a new language of leadership, one that Q shows can teach us how to lead from the middle. And if the way we approach leadership can help others think differently, ultimately we can create a ripple effect of empathy, compassion, kindness, and a sense of purpose for our life's work. Dr. Shepard, Q, thanks for joining me today and say hi to everyone. Hey, thanks for having me. Really excited to be here and and appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. Well, this is awesome. Glad you're here and I uh, enjoyed reading your book. And as a uh, school leader, it, it's cool to uh, really identify what you're talking about. So this is awesome stuff. So, uh, so Q, let's start by understanding what you mean when you use the term transformational leadership. Yeah, even even coming up with the title was was one of those things that we, we debated at a great extent because um, you could look at, you know, transformational leadership, which is the way a lot of folks talk about leadership now. Like this is the present moment, what, what folks are focused on. And there's this juxtaposition that happens between transactional leadership and transformational leadership. And we're kind of, if you read the literature, we're supposed to aspire to transformational leadership as if somehow transactional leadership is wrong or, or not appropriate. And this is just one framework to look at this by. Um, You can look at the very same framework, transactional versus transformational, and you could talk about um, some of the work from Heifetz and Linsky where they talk about technical versus adaptive change. 
Or you could look at the work of uh, Clayton Christensen. You could talk about complicated versus complex. And in my mind, all, all of these things layer on top of each other. And, and there's this one huge concept of the juxtaposition of leadership. Like there's these two different leadership styles and, and, and how are we dealing with that? And specifically, how are we dealing with that in the public sphere? And so transformational leadership for me is this new era, new way of thinking about how we do leadership in this very specific context that is in the public sphere. Because what's happened in education, I think in large part um, around the country, is that we've um, collectively kind of pushed the public away from public education. And, and we now have an obligation to bring the public back to public education. And that means that we have to change how we're doing leadership in that public space. Gotcha. I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, I, I agree. We have managed to push them away and it's time to figure out how to bring them back. So uh, good, good stuff. Uh, you know, uh, um, Q, in the introduction of your book, you note this. The, the big aha from this book is that leadership does not start from the top or the front, but in the middle. Leading from the middle is the new language of leadership we all must master. I will endeavor to give you tools, tips, and strategies to help make this happen. Could you talk about what you want the audience to know about uh, what leading from the middle is and isn't? Sure. Um, typically, when people think of a leadership paradigm, or, or you know, this is especially poignant when I bring up um, leadership in, in a master's class, or even sometimes a, a doctoral level class, and we talk about leadership, people it, it have this you know vision in their head of what leadership is, and it usually revolves around some version of a hierarchy, right? Like there's this you know superintendent if we think about schools who sits at the top of this hierarchy and, you know, and then the question becomes, well, is it, you know, through the community or through the board or is it from teachers to administrators and how does that hierarchy work? And the, here's the thing, that hierarchy is really, really important. There's stuff about my job that I have to be able to do that I rely on the hierarchy. And the reason that the hierarchy works or the reason that the hierarchy is necessary is because it requires us to have a, a conceptualization of, of power and power dynamics. So this is where I start to talk about the technical or complicated aspects of my work. So the work that we do as leaders, if there's one right answer, if there's one right way to do it, if you require expertise to do it, then we need hierarchies. We need more antiquated forms of leadership that we think about um, how we do leadership. If, for instance, I was going to ask you to disassemble and reassemble uh, a, an engine of a car, well, I'm not going to do that. Like, there's one right way to do it. I'm guessing that either you and I, and even working together, we'd end up with lots of parts left over, and that's, <laughs> that's not a good thing. Um, so, so hierarchies, they, they matter, and they're, they're not to be eschewed or thrown away or, you know, put in the trash. But those are typically top-down. You could think of them like a pyramid, right? There's, there's the folks in the bottom, and you work your way to the top. But when you're in the world of complex and unknowable, right? Um, so complex and unknowable. What's the best way to educate kids during a pandemic? What's the best time to go out for a bond? When's the best time to close the school? When's the best time to open the school? Where's the best place to build a school? None of these questions have answers. They have thoughts and you have things that you want people to consider, but there's no right way to do it. And so then you take that pyramid and what you really have to do is you have to put it tip down so it's facing you and that puts leadership right in the center. And that's the leadership that has to happen in the complex space. That's the leadership that has to happen where you're part of a community, but you're not the voice of the community. You're not, you're not telling people because, because there's this really interesting phenomenon. And frankly, it just, it just offends me to my very core is that if, if I say to you, Steve, if you're in my community and I say to you, let me tell you how it really is. 
then what I'm saying to you is that I want you to subordinate your will to mine because I somehow have a privileged view of reality. Now, how, how much more offensive could I be in the face of a question that doesn't have one right answer than to say, you don't know what you don't know, just trust me, I have the answer. Um, so that's what I mean when I say leadership from the will. I appreciate you saying that. It's, you know, it's one of the things that uh, when, we, when you talk about uh, lots of people's thoughts and experience with leadership is simply being told what to do. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. And, uh, and I like this approach to uh, trying to get to the understanding that that's not really what should be happening there. So <laughs> I love that. So, uh, you know, early in your book, you mentioned that the secret to transformational leadership is really for two audiences, uh, leaders embracing change and aspiring leaders. Could you talk about why you thought it might be important to explain this? Yeah, I, I wanted to write the book, and I had several different starts on it, but I wanted to write the book in such a way that, um, that, that folks who have been doing leadership for a while would have something that they could connect to. And especially if they're looking at, at this whole thing we call leadership and saying, gosh, we might not be doing it exactly right. Like, there, there might be, why is it not working in some places and working in others? Why, is I, why have I had success in some places and not had success in others? And so I wanted to connect with those leaders that are really interested in growing leadership and, and, and thinking differently about how we do leadership. But, and as I alluded to earlier, I also have the opportunity to teach um, at university in my, <laughs> in my free time, not much free time, as you can imagine, but, um, definitely. and so there's aspiring leaders out there that are growing up, if you will, in a system where they recognize that the system is not right. It's not, we're not delivering the best that we can for our communities and, and for our kids. And, uh, and so I, I want to be able to speak to that audience as well, because as they go through this aspiring leadership, as they go through their coursework, they will read all these various leadership theories and, and leadership thoughts and so on and so forth. And my hope is that this book gives them a framework or a connecting point to connect all these various theories to a way of thinking, which is, which is to me kind of important. Oh, that's, that's powerful. I mean, it, it, you know, and too often, um, it's funny, a lot of times everything's directed towards the person who's in that position as opposed to the person who might be thinking about being in that position. And, oh, yeah. Uh, and that's so important uh, to, to try and get them thinking, I think, differently about it ahead of time. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, I think for all of us, every, every principal, superintendent, every leader I've ever spoken to, um, you know, the first few years when you, when you set out and, you, and you're actually doing the work, the first few years you, 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 you play by the rules as they're handed down to you. And then you sort of figure out what you're all about, right? And you start to play with a different set of rules and maybe even a slightly different game. And so for those leaders who are setting out just early on their path or, or not yet even started, like I want to hand them a different set of rules. I want, to, I, want to, I want them to say, what if? What if we did this? What might happen for kids? I love that because that's, you're so right, you know, because in the beginning, it's all about, uh, all right, so, you know, where am I going to, am I going to veer from this path or am I just going to stay on the, mm -hmm. you know, as I'm being told and, uh, and uh, at some point, uh, you know, whether it's early on or where it's later in it, if you, if you really have a thought about doing things for the, the children in your school, then you're going to kind of run into a wall. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. And it's, and it's really fascinating. This is, and this shouldn't be surprising to us. We're going to take a little bit of a, a chase, a little bit of a rabbit trail here, but I know you have lots of listeners and, and hopefully folks who are aspiring to leadership positions. And so I'll, I'll give a little bit of background here and maybe even a little bit of theory. 
um, you know, you could go back to uh, just a seminal uh, work. Uh, the gentleman's name was Irving Goffman. It was 1959, if you can believe that. And it was called Presentation of Self in Everyday Life. He was not writing about education. He was a, a theorist, and a behavioral theorist. And what he was saying is that, like, a police officer, before they start, they have a vision in their mind of what a police officer should dress like, act like, talk like. Like, what is it? And that's that vision of a police officer in our minds. And then we try to live that vision when we actually get the job. And it's not just for police officers. It's true for doctors and teachers and lawyers and virtually any profession. We have this notion of a presentation of self in this mental image of what we think they should be. And that's how I did the principalship too, right? But the thing is that my mental model was based on a generation prior and it just didn't serve me well. And so the whole, the whole premise here is that if you can get a different mental model in your head, especially if you're a student of leadership and you're, you're interested in the leadership path, you get a different model in your head. You're going to live a different, you're going to live a different presentation of self when you actually get into that role. And that for me is super exciting. I love that. That's awesome. Cause I know like in my case, it's, I already had an image of what I, um, what I wanted, but it, it had, Basically, what happens is as a teacher, I'm in there to make it exciting and engaging and all kinds of stuff like this, which was the opposite of what I experienced. And then I ran into having a principal, and his name was Bob. And, you know, I basically started going, you know, when I get a little older, when I grow up, I want to be like Bob, you know, that type of thing. <laughs> and so I think when you have a, a that type of leader in, in charge of you, you also, the, the impact that it can have on you is to also push those barriers or whatever it might be to only be this one sort of type of uh, um, thinker or whatever. That's right. That's right. Well, good stuff. I appreciate you. And I didn't think that was a rabbit trail. Thanks for doing that. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's, let's do this for a second. I mean, could you explain the difference? Okay. Cause now we're getting into your book. All right. So yeah. um, can you uh, just explain the difference between compassion-based leadership and competent leadership? And, and so this notion of competency-based leadership, that's where I'm going to start. That's on, this, that's on the side of the spectrum where we're talking about technical, right? That's where we're talking about, like I had mentioned earlier, there's one way to disassemble a, a, a car engine and put it back together. Anytime it requires technical expertise and there's only one right answer for this. Like if that's the case, then we should be thinking competency framework leadership, hierarchies, power structures, um, complicated these are the words that we should be using. And there's like actually a whole language. And this is a big part of the book. Like there's a whole language that we use to be self-reinforcing self for those structures, right? And so we use very specific words when we're directing behavior. As in, I'll give you a very clear example. This is what I want from you. You need to deliver this. I, I need this by this date. Like this is very directive language. This is what I want from you. On the flip side of that paradigm, and again, it's not about good or bad, but when you're in the public sphere and you say, this is what I want from you, well, you're telling everyone, I view this thing that we're talking about as complicated and only one right answer, and so what I'd like for you to do is to judge me because there's only one right answer. So what I want from, if I said what I want from my team is a pandemic response plan, and then I trot it out to my community and my community says, oh, I could look online and find 10 plans that are way better than that, so I am going to judge you and I'm going to give you an F. Well, it's right, rightfully deserved. I mean, we basically ask for it. We use the language of competency when what we really wanted to do is something transformational. So you have to have a word that stands in opposition to competency-based leadership. And for me, that's compassion. Compassion breaks down, passion being suffering, compassion being suffering with. 
So with compassionate-based leadership, then when you're faced with the unknowable, you lead with a question, not with the answer. And you lead with vulnerability. You say, I don't know what we should be doing in pandemic response plan. This is the first time I've, I've experienced a pandemic that we're going to shut down schools, but I want to do what's best for kids. So what do you think we should do? And that's basically what we did. You know, years and years ago when the pandemic first started, we went out to our teachers. We feel like the people, this is another sort of mantra that we use, the people who are going to be most impacted by the decision should have the greatest voice in that decision. So we went to our teachers and we did a mega Zoom when everybody was sitting at home. We said, we want to write this pandemic response plan together. and We don't really know how to approach it. What do you think? We had 700 teachers come together and crowdsource great ideas. And when we took those 700 ideas, this is, it was already brilliant. The next thing we did is we went to a bunch of kids, middle school and high school kids, not quite a thousand kids. That was a bad idea. You see, we were early on in the Zoom process. We didn't realize putting a thousand kids in the same room was a bad idea. <laughs> Turns out it was a really bad idea, but we were able to work through it. And we said, look, this is what your teachers came up with. We're not entirely sure what to do. Um, what are your thoughts and questions? And they gave us just loads of great information. And then, and then lastly, we went to the parents Say, okay, this is what the teachers wrote and the kids reviewed and, and responded to. And this is what we've come up with. What, what, what thoughts and questions do you have? And by the end of it, we had literally thousands and thousands and thousands of people add their voices to the writing of this plan. So that when the superintendent walks the plan out, the community says, this is what you wrote. The community is like, yeah, let's get to work. That's cool. That's so cool. Yeah. That's all. That's a lot of asking for voice because that's uh, and getting that information yeah. and and because uh, there are people who would say, you know, it's just as easy as if I just tell them what to do. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. But then again, you're asking to be judged and that might work, uh, but there's a really good chance that it's going to go really wrong at some point. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, cool. I, I, you know. In, uh, in chapter two, you start off by saying excuses, excuses, excuses. Sometimes it can feel like an endless line of excuses. I love the beginning of this. This is so cool. Yeah. Um, let's talk about your focus on excuses. Yeah. Share a little bit. It's, again, it's, that, it's, that, it's that juxtaposition, right? So you, if, you're, if you're in a competency-based framework and you, you say, this is what I want from you, you know, and this is, and then you don't deliver, then in all likelihood, when I come back for the accountability part of the conversation, and like all these, as I say these words, I hope people are thinking, oh yeah, crucial accountability and, and crucial conversations, all the rest of this, yeah, that the language that we've learned to speak, then I'm going to get an excuse, right? And it's, it doesn't, if, if it's a little thing or a big thing or anything in between, it's going to be an excuse. We, we failed this, we failed this, whatever. And, and so I'm holding you accountable and then I get an excuse, nothing really changes. But if I pivot, and I've said this a couple of times, if I pivot away from what I want from you, and I focus on what I want for you, then I'm not likely to ever get an excuse. But I will get an explanation, which is, which is wholly different, right? An excuse versus an explanation. Now, that, that's, a, that's a small word choice, but a really big and profound impact on the organization and the human connection that can be forged in that space. And so... There's times where excuses, I guess, are, are important when you're in that hierarchy framework. But if if we drop the ball, then then publicly, I want to offer an explanation for why. If something didn't work out, let's talk about why it didn't work out. Let's let's put it out there. Let's lead with vulnerability. Let's lead with suffering. I'm really suffering about this. This didn't turn out the way I wanted it to, uh, and I'd like to do better. You know, what what are your thoughts and questions? Um, it gets to this notion of how do we talk about accountability. And that's a big part of education. We've worked for 40, almost 50 years. We have worked really hard as an institution to couple failure and blame. 
We have. We've married them together with the national and federal accountability movement and all of our focus on accountability. We have said, if you fail, we need to find out who's to blame. And we've worked hard. We've built paradigms. We've built policies. We've built procedures. I mean, 50 years of hard work. And then we wonder, then we wonder why nobody wants to innovate in the education space. Like to me, it's so blatantly obvious because people aren't afraid of failure. They're afraid of blame. So if we could focus on decoupling failure from blame, well, then people are willing to innovate. Then people are willing to explain when things don't go well, right? Then you can use data as a flashlight and not as a hammer, right? And what happens is it changes, it, 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 it changes the culture of the school district and the schools and the campuses and the classrooms in a profound way. And I can use kindergarten parlance to explain it. I could walk in any campus anywhere in the country, and I could tell you within about three seconds, maybe two, what their orientation is to accountability and failure and data. And it's simply this, their culture is either hide and seek or it's show and tell. And if it's a hide and seek culture, then I can tell you they use data to punish people. Accountability is a hammer. They live in competency-based frameworks. That's the language that they use. And that's how they choose to operate. But if it's a show and tell culture, then we're in transformational, we're in compassionate leadership, we're in um, explanations, not excuses, and so on and so forth. And, and sadly, it takes, like I said, less than five seconds. You know, and it's, all I can think about is all the different times when, because you literally have to make, going back to something you said earlier, you, at some point you have to make a choice, and whether it's conscious or not. <laughs> but if, you know, if you got into leadership so that you could make a difference or so you could make something work like it should for the families and the kids uh, over some other reason, at some point you're going to have to come to this decision about do I stop what I'm doing right now or do I push, I jump, I go through, I go under, I go around um, and risk dealing with whatever is going to come my way because of this thought that, you know, we all should be willing to be accountable. The problem is, is that it's always been attached to the, this thought that you're going to get smacked <laughs> as opposed to talking about why it did or didn't work. And, uh, okay. and I think that is so powerful what you're talking about, because I think it's a huge thing that we got to get, we got to get, we, we got to throw something out. So it gets, it gets, you know, it gets out of there because that is something that, I mean, it's, you know, I, I was in a meeting one time where one of the other, uh, principals who's in the meeting started talking about, um, this is kind of like one of those stories where you say things like, uh, um, I know this person. It's not me, but I. <laughs> but, uh -huh, uh -huh. Uh, but you know, th the idea that you felt like uh, um, the leader of the whole group wanted everybody to uh, talk about, uh, you know, basically soar and be out there and take, you know, try change and do all this stuff, but you actually were standing on a limb and they were sawing the limb while you're standing on it right. and right. you know, just waiting for you to fail so that then they could blame you for whatever happened. And that's a big reason why in that same school system, why you had a lot who just kind of let's do beans, butts and buses, man. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. And it gets to this notion of something else I talk about in the book about ownership, like, because what you're really trying to do with complex and unknowable is create ownership around the solution, whatever it is. So, you know, when's the best time to close campuses and declining enrollment? Well, nobody knows that, but whatever decision has to be made, the, 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 um, the insecure leader will make that decision on their own, relying on their own expertise and saying, this is a very technical, there's only one way to do it problem. And the community says, you know, as we said, when we started this podcast, 
This, this is, this is how you remove the public from public education. Like that's it. That's how you do it. And then if you want to bring the public back to public education, you say, here's this point of suffering for us. We have declining enrollment in these campuses. And that means that we're not as efficient as we could be. And the kids might not be getting the quality of education that we want them to have. And we're really struggling with this. And we want to solve this problem. And we'd love for you to come to the table and help us solve it. And, and that's exactly what we did. We closed uh, four campuses. Wow. And, and the com- it was the community's recommendation to do it. Not, not Q. He didn't stand up and say, I'm the smartest guy in the room and I want you to do this because it makes sense. It was a community saying, God, this really sucks. Like this, this really, really sucks. Um, but we recognize we have to do it for the future of our, for our, of our district. That's, that is, oh my gosh. I, that is, talk about a real conversation right there. Um, and to have to do four, if it was just your idea and you stood up in front of them, you better watch out for what's coming your way. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But right. That is so, um, and to get the community to say, Hey, this is bad, but we got to do it. That's, uh, that speaks to what you're talking about because that's they start recognizing because you're allowing their voice. So I like that. Um, you know, in uh, uh, could you explain one of the, the concepts you talk about is something called feed forward. Could you talk about what that is? Yeah, we, we, we often we're good at asking for feedback and, and I'm a big fan of it, too. And feedback, again, I'm just going to keep coming back to these concepts because it's, it's just so important. It's that juxtaposition um concept again, where if you're, you're looking at competency, your ability, your ability to you know, do this thing this very specific way and to be judged, then yes, you should absolutely ask for feedback. And so when we go to our communities and say, we want your feedback, then what we're saying is, could you please judge me? I would like to get a letter grade on my ability to do X, Y, or Z. And oftentimes I've, I've come to realize that's not actually what we want. We don't want feedback because we're in the, in the complex and inherently unknowable space. And so we need to come up with a word that's not feedback. And the best one that I could come up with was feed forward because feedback tells you who you are and feed forward tells you who you are becoming. So we actually use this word feed forward. We explain it to people it's who we are becoming. We need your feed forward as we look at this particular grant program and we're thinking about a magnet school at one of our elementaries to create a STEM-based learning pathway. We'd love to get your feed forward on that. And that's our way of signaling to the community, different language. We're now in complex. We don't know the answer. We're really interested in what your thoughts are so that we can create a plan. And so we're very conscientious. And sometimes even in the same survey, we will do both feedback and feed forward, but we're very careful about demarcating that space. Uh, I love that because it's, you know, it is because uh, you're, you're talking about doing something and you're even changing the language to get the point through that we are changing how we approach this. So this is, I, I like that. That's, that's nice. Well, and imagine how, how, how freeing it is when we're dealing, when we're working with our employees, rather than just giving them feedback. Now we can have a serious conversation about feed forward for people as well. And for our students feed forward, like this is who you're becoming. In our, in our strategic plan, we talk about everyone finding their genius, right? Kids, teachers, and everybody in between is finding your genius, discovering your genius, chasing your genius. Everybody has this unique genius you bring into the world. Well, it's, it's really kind of an extension on this concept of feed forward, who you are, who you are becoming. And we want to be a part of that conversation as opposed to just feedback. This is how you did on that test. You know, this is how you did in the classroom um, this year. Feed forward, like, What's your future, you know, what's your future aspirations in the leadership pipeline, you know, for instance? Awesome. Love it. I, you know, uh, in chapter four, it's titled from soft skills to power skills. 
All right, you got to talk about what power skills, because you, you talk about it as power skills or the new language of leadership. Yeah, it really is. I mean, we, we got into this, we got into this framework of hard skills and soft skills and, and we've used that for years and years and years. And, and I'm not the first to coin this, you know, phrase that soft skills are power skills, but they really truly are power school skills. And, and the way that, the way that I, you know, kind of frame this up in my own mind, again, it comes back to this theoretical framework is that, you know, if you're on the technical side, right. If you're talking about hard skills, if you're on the technical side, there's one right way to do it you know, so on and so forth. The interesting thing about that entire paradigm, the, the entire paradigm, all the language and everything else we've been talking about for the last half an hour or so is that you're, you're ultimately, you're fragile, right? And I use that word very specifically. You're fragile as in you could be really strong on your hard skills, or you could be really weak on your hard skills. And if you're weak, you could get strong. And if you're strong, you could get weak. And if you're weak, you could become irrelevant. And the point is, regardless of where you are on that spectrum, you are fragile. You are just a fragile creature in a fragile space. But there's this, this other side of the paradigm, the complex side of the par- paradigm, where you actually become anti-fragile. You, you gain from disorder, right? There's no other way to say it. You can't talk about strong and weak because that doesn't apply, right? You just, you just gain from disorder. So the pandemic, for instance, we gained as a district from the disorder. When it came to closing schools, we gained as a district from the disorder. We rezoned our boundaries. We gained from the disorder. Right. And so from the, you know, from, from what it takes. So, so the power skill is the ability to go over here into this complex and unknowable space, lead with vulnerability and say, let's solve this problem together. Well, that's what we used to call soft skills. We used to say, oh, that's people. That's how you talk to people and shake hands and look at, look them in the eye and so on and so forth. No, no, no. Just, just, just disabuse yourself of all of that garbage for a minute. And let's walk over here and recognize that that's actually a power skill. That's how you lead in the complex. It's a, it's a requirement. If you can't do it, you'll never have the ability to lead, truly lead in the complex. And I, I love that because that is so, you know, asking f- for others, not just their input, but to help solve the problem. Here's, here's this idea and concept. That's huge because some people, that, that makes them, they have to put out there that they don't know everything or they have to put out their, uh, their vulnerability that I'm, and because, you know, because what the person then is going to look for is if you actually mean what you say, which means that you want them to work with you on this because there are, unfortunately there have been some leaders who what they do is they ask you, but then they just change whatever you do and they do whatever they wanted anyway. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. You, yeah, you nailed it. You, you nailed it exactly well. And the, and the interesting, there's an interesting um, paradigm shift that happens here and you kind of alluded to it a little bit and I'm, I'm fascinated by this. I love to see this when it happens with people is that if you lead in this way, if you lead with vulnerability, if you lead with compassion, suffering and suffering with, and so on and so forth, then what you're saying to folks is, I don't know what to do in this space, but I'm curious what your thoughts are. So let's say that you and I are having a conversation about anything that's complex and, and inherently noble. I, I mentioned just a few minutes ago, we rezoned a, you know, two thirds of our district. When, when I ask you, when I say to you first, I don't, I don't know exactly what to do. I have some thoughts about this, but I'm really curious what your thoughts are. What I've said to you, what I've cued to your brain, like how I use the word cue. I like that. What I've cued (laughs) cued to your brain is that I want for you to be closed and knowing. And that's really important. I want you to be closed-minded and I want for you to know the answer. This is so powerful to human beings. Every human being I've ever come in contact with wants to be closed and knowing. Because it honors us as a person. Like, you know stuff, and you should be valued for knowing your stuff. And that's super cool. So when I start in that space and say, well, what would you do? You're, I'm, I'm begging you 
be close to knowing. I'm forcing you to be close to knowing. But then when I ask you to listen to the thoughts of other people, then you walk through this like mental doorway to open and learning where you could say you're still open, open open-minded. And you're saying, Oh, that's interesting way to frame it up. Um, I think that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. Or (laughs) you say, Oh, that's an interesting way of framing it up. That's, that's fascinating. Like that, that might actually work. And people do that. If you can create and hold space, where you're not being judgmental and all the rest of that garbage, then what happens is people walk through that door where they're honored of being closed to knowing and then open and learning. And as an organization, that's how you create the hive mind, if you will, right? Because it's a, it becomes a truly a learning organization. You could do this with 20 people in the room, or you could do it with 700 people in the room. It doesn't really matter. Um, the trick is to walk people through that, walk people through that doorway. That's so powerful. I, I just, especially because, you know, for the most part, how we become, we step into the roles as, as a leader and so forth. We don't have a lot of, a lot of times you don't have training in this. You're, you're having classes and questions and, you know, papers and such that you're doing. Um, but I'm not sure how many people really step into this, you know, this idea of uh, trying to help you figure out how to get people to work with you on something as opposed to, uh, you know, just giving you some theories and, you know, you figure it out yourself. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the truth is I'm a lot more effective as a, as a person when I have three or 4,000 people trying to help me achieve my goal. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I like that. Uh, you know, one, one of the things you keep using this term complex, so I got to bring this up. So chapter yeah. six is titled from complex, um, complicated to complex. I- embracing the truly complex means embracing the role of luck and risk and outcomes. Can you talk about that statement right there? Yeah, it's, as I've said several times, complex is inherently unknowable. And as soon as you recognize that it's inherently unknowable, then you, then you recognize that it's really going to be subject to a lot of predictions and predictions are also unknowable, right? And so it's this notion that that luck is going to be a part of the equation. And you just have to say that luck is going to be part of this and risk is going to be part of this. And then trying to identify what level of risk or what, you know, what you're comfortable with, what your tolerance level is. And so that then becomes a part of the, it becomes a part of the conversation in the complex, right? We're really hopeful that this thing is going to happen, but it might not. And just foreshadowing to folks that if you, if you have the, you know, the magic eight ball, if you know exactly what our student enrollment is going to be 10 years from now, we'd sure like to know because we don't. And, and most folks are pretty quick to admit that they don't know either. But that doesn't stop us from making predictions, and it doesn't stop us from taking steps to move forward. Uh, but I think oftentimes we make these predictions. It, it, maybe, maybe it's unique to education, but I don't think it is. We make these predictions, and we pretend like luck isn't a part of the conversation. No, it, it absolutely is, and, and risk is a, huge, is a huge part of the conversation. And when it comes to risk, I think the leader... And this isn't in the book, so I'm giving you something that's out. This is going to be in the next book, I think, right? Because there's a whole bunch of other words. There's like a whole bunch of other words and paradigms and things that we could be talking about, and I feel like we should be talking about. But like when it comes to risk, there's a way to put these on the spectrum as well and to create a juxtaposition. So as you said, you were a former, was it elementary principal or high school principal? High school, high school. High school principal. Okay, so when it comes to risk, let's say that you're you're looking at the risk that comes along with a, a new curriculum for the math department, and we'll say not a not a not a core curriculum, but a supplementary to help kids who are struggling in algebra. Right. Okay. So when it comes to risk, as a leader, do you? I'm talking about the you as in a general sense, not you specifically. Do you have the ability to step back 
and say, okay, well, in this particular environment, I want to substantiate what I believe to be true, or am I willing to speculate about what might work? And unless the leader steps back and asks themselves that question, they're sending their staff on a, on a fool's errand. It's, it's a wild goose chase, and nobody's ever going to know if it's going to work or not, right? And this is what I mean by kind of that luck and uh, risk. Like, how do, you, how do you frame your mind around risk? Well, if you're looking to substantiate what you believe to be true, you're really in, in complicated work. Like, I, we did this thing, we've tried this thing, we've deployed it, maybe it's with the professional development, or maybe it's with the students we're using, or you know, whatever, but you're viewing this as like there's a solution to it, there's one solution, and we should be doing the right thing. But if your level of risk is pretty high, and that's all about substantiating, but if your level of risk is pretty high and you're willing to speculate, then you go to your teachers first, vulnerability, compassion, complex. And you say, here's this problem we have with our Algebra 1 students, and I'm not exactly sure what to do. I have a couple of good ideas, but I'd love to hear what you're thinking. Right? Now you've opened the door for risk, and you're in transformational, specifically thinking about the paradigm of risk. And we're not even talking about anything else. Like you, you, We haven't even gotten into the other stuff. But So what I actually have on my desk, you can't, you, you can't see it here the way that the camera is set up, but um, I actually have a list of words, and they're, they're guardrails. Right. And so when I want to talk about what's my role in the leadership paradigm here, what's my role in, in um, um, people development, if you will, what's my role in risk, what's my role in. And so I force myself to go through this question about, like, what's my tolerance level and all these various things as a leader so that I can make sure that I'm very, very clear with my team. I want us to be transformational in this space or I'm actually looking for us to be transactional in this space because I don't want to send that mixed message. We just send too many mixed messages. Uh, to our staff and to our community. Oh, you're so right. You're so right. This is this is so cool. I mean, you this, and, and I hope my listeners understand. I mean, they need to go out and get your book, man. This, this is yeah. this is a it, it's just chock full of stuff. It's going to give you ideas about how to how how to have these conversations and what you what you're going to run into, which is so cool. I I got to ask you this, Q. Um, where does a leader start in changing the way he or she approaches you know leadership? I mean, where do they where do they begin? I mean, what is there like a start here? <laughs> yes, yes, there actually is. And thank you for asking this. Um, I, I think, you know, with the book, after you've read the book, if it resonates with you, there's a couple of things that you could, you could do. As I just explained in the, in the, in the previous question, just create a list of words from the book. I, I, I'm very deliberate about creating the juxtaposition between the two, the two words that you could use in this particular context. Right. And so what that does is if you just simply were to write that down and put it on your desk, it would, it would be a, a reminder to you, complicated versus complex. How do I want to lead in this space? What language do I want to use in this space? And if it makes sense to you, if it's something that resonates with you, um, we have resources on our, on our uh, website. You can go to the website, um, transformationalleadershipsecret.com. And, you know, we've got a newsletter that we're trying to put together. There's a lot of folks who've been asking for this type of information about like, how do I do this? How do I put this into practice? And so, um, you know, you start start with the language because it's all about the language. It, it goes back to this notion of very mixed messages that we send people, and and frankly, we can do a better we can do a better job. That is so awesome. That is so awesome. And and you know, I was just getting ready to ask you if you had a place where you would send people to connect and learn. And it sounds like transformationalsecret.com would be that place. Is that 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 is exactly right? Transformationalleadershipsecret.com. And I'm sure we can hyperlink that probably to the notes of your 
of your podcast. Oh, it will be there. Matter of fact, uh, and I love, I love the way this works because I put them in the show notes and what ends up happening is that if they're listening on their mobile phone, all they got to do is go to the show notes and you'll be hyperlinked right there. Boom. And go straight there to your is. website. It's good stuff. I, Q, I, I, this has been awesome talking with you today. And uh, I, I got last two questions I'd like to ask my guests. And if we could just go there for a minute and we'll finish up, sure. that, that would be awesome. So the first question is this. How do you keep going when so much is going on that you may want to quit? That's a, that's, a great, that's a really great question. How do you keep going when so much is going on that you may want to quit? I think it's um, – I'm filled with more hope than I've ever, than I've ever had. Truth be told, I, I, it's not a question I have to ask myself because, um, you know, we got, we got shaken up pretty hard here these last couple of years. But what we what we learned from that is that we're resilient and we learned that we are capable of learning and growing as as an organization and as and as people. And um, that gives me hope. And whenever I need hope and it's stories, stories of kids, stories of kids being successful, that that's my reason for, for getting up, um, every morning. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that I, an activity I love to take people through is, is I love to ask folks, like if there was one word that would define your life, I mean, from the moment your eyes open in the morning until the moment they close at night, if you, and it's not that like, this is, it's not that this is the word that necessarily defines your life. It's like, it is the entire box of your universe. Like you can, it's just this word that defines who you are. Um, a lot of folks are, they stumble over finding an answer, like just one word that, that, it, that is, that, that defines me. But for me, it's simple. It's all about potential. It's the potential in myself. For years and years and years, I was an ultra marathon runner. Um, it was all about potential. It's the potential of my school board. It's the potential of my community. It's the potential of my staff. It's the potential of my leadership. It's the potential of my students. Like that's, that is the word that defines every aspect of my life. So that's my inspiration, potential. I love that. That is awesome. That is so cool. And, you know, it's just, it's just one of those things that uh, so many people have these thoughts about. There's just so much going on. And I just, maybe I should just quit. And I, so thank you for that inspiration. Good stuff. Uh, you know, last question for you I got. It goes like this. Do you have a teacher in your past who made a difference in your life? And if so, who was it? And if you had a chance to say thank you, what would you say? I have three that immediately come to mind. Um, but I'll talk about one in particular. Uh, when I was in high school, I had a piano teacher. I was a music teacher. I don't think we got into that part of my life. Oh, no, I, I, I was a music teacher pre-K through 12. I played piano and sang and you know, thought I was going to be Harry Connick Jr. until I realized you have to have some talent. And then, <laughs> so I went into teaching. Uh, but I was taking uh, piano lessons uh, from, uh, from my teacher in high school. And I had learned to play. I was born rural poor. We had a piano, but I hadn't taken lessons. I learned to play by ear mostly. And so by the end, I had some, I had some natural talent, natural ability. And so by the time I started taking lessons, I didn't really know how to read music all that well. And so I would kind of play by ear what I thought I was hearing. And she taught me over time to, to play the notes as written on the page. But she recognized that because I played by ear, I could improv pretty well. Like I just, you know, kind of play whatever came to mind. And you have to picture this lady for the story to be so powerful. She was like, at the time she was like 90 years old and she was like Yoda's height. I mean, she was tiny. She could sit on a piano bench and swing her legs to give you some idea of how short she was. Gotcha. And she had three pianos in this one little room in her house. And one day I've been taking lessons with her for, for a few years at this point. And she said something to me that will remain with me to the day I die. 
She said, let's let your genius play. And she turned around to the other piano in the room and she just started rocking out. Now this was a classically trained pianist who had gone to Juilliard. I had no idea that she could rock out, you know, blues and jazz and that kind of stuff. And so we just jammed for like an hour and it was amazing. But that word genius changed my life. And I realized that that's what every great educator should do. They should look for the genius in their kids. They should look for the genius in each other. And then when you find it, you let that genius play. And like, how cool is that? I get goosebumps to this day about letting genius play. And it's one of my commitments to the staff that I work with. Geez, I'm going to be crying here before a minute. Um, it's, it's what I look for in my staff. Find their genius and let that genius play. It's what I want for my kids. Find their genius and let that genius play. I mean, that's, there's, there's, not a, there's not a better route through life. That's so cool. That is so powerful. I, oh, I can't thank you enough for sharing that story. That's, that's awesome. The, uh, and, and obviously it stayed stuck with you cause it's in uh, yeah, it. so good stuff. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, Q, this has been so cool talking with you. Your book, the secret to transformational leadership has so much to share for all. It's an amazing look at the reasons for why we lead and provides a toolkit for becoming transformational. I wish you the best in all you do. Thank you. Thanks for this opportunity. Really appreciate it. Hey, you have been listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast to help you help kids achieve their dreams. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 is a member of the podcast network based in Canada called Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right. The opinions expressed on Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Hey, thanks for listening. It would be awesome if you visited my website at stephenmaletto.com and connected with me, left a review, and listened to more episodes. And by the way, you could also share it with your friends, with your family, and uh, your colleagues. Thanks so much. You're awesome.